0: Well, good morning. I think I heard like three. We need a little better. Good morning. Good morning. (laughs) morning. Uh, I I enjoy uh, movies that have a twist at the end. There are a number of great movies like that. The problem is that I have also been known to uh, ruin those movies with twists at the end Uh, for other people when I get so excited about telling about the movie that I then reveal the big twist. Uh, so I'm not going to do that, but I am going to quote from one of those great movies, The Usual Suspects. And Kevin Spacey's character says this, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. The greatest trick the devil devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. C.S. Lewis wrote a great story a fictitious story that rings with a lot of truth called the Screwtape Letters. That's this conversation between a senior devil and a lowly beginner new hire devil um, as he mentors him in the art and the work of being a devil. Uh, And he writes in his preface a very similar phrase um, that I think will help frame, hopefully, where we're going today in Ephesians 6. This is what C.S. Lewis says. There are two equal and opposite errors... Into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and they hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So the sense of there are two. Uh, Two ways that we can fall as we view uh, evil and devils and the powers and forces of evil at work in the world. We can either disbelieve and just ignore the reality. Or we can become so obsessed and so concerned and worried that we end up attributing far more power to them than they actually have. We are here at the end of Ephesians. Uh, We've been in this book for almost three months now and it's been such a rich journey. And at the end here, Paul helps us see how we are equipped in Christ for a battle that we cannot always see. But nonetheless, it's a battle that each one of us is engaged in. So I want to read from Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. You can read in your Bibles if you have them or find it on your phone or follow along on the screen. Finally. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Lord, thank you for your word. Would you be our teacher this morning? That as we hear your word, as we consider the truth of your scriptures, that it would go deep into our hearts and into our minds, that it would take root there and that it would bear fruit in our lives. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. So if you've been tracking along with where we've been in Ephesians, uh, the last few weeks we've been talking about some of the very practical ways that we walk this Christian life, that we live out our faith in very real circumstances, right? Marriage, parenting children, um, being children, uh, in our in the workplace. Uh, and then we all of a sudden were... Dropped into this spiritual war, It can feel a little bit like out of left field. Um, But I think it's actually a really fitting summary for the whole book. I think we'll find some themes that Paul has begun all the way back in the first chapter of Ephesians. uh, Work their way and find their way to uh, completion here in, in this passage in Ephesians 6. And the first place is right at the very beginning. Finally, my brothers and sisters, he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Power and strength is one of the themes that uh, Paul has written about in a number of places here in Ephesians. And he wants us to be clear about a couple of things. One, that power comes from God. All power and authority comes from God. But God desires to give it to his people and to fill us with that kind of power. There's a couple of uh, spots earlier on in Ephesians 1 and 3 where Paul actually, he kind of interrupts himself and he prays for the church in Ephesus. He kind of stops his train of thought and he's like, I'm praying for you guys. And in both of those prayers, he prays for power that they would know intellectually, but also experientially the power of God. The power, he says, that raised Jesus from the dead, that kind of power, which is pretty powerful power. Paul's prayer for that church and for our church and for the church is that we would know and experience that kind of power. And so he goes on, this is uh, how we appropriate that power, right? How we can make this power ours by putting on the full armor of God so that we take our stand against the devil's schemes. This is where Paul talks about our struggle not being against flesh and blood, but against the, powers, uh, against the powers of this dark world, against the rulers, the authorities, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is a very similar verse to one that he had earlier in Ephesians, where he talked about where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God the Father, above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked. So it's sort of, it harkens us back to this description of Christ as one who has all power over all these other powers. Reminding us that uh, this this is a battle that has already been won. We're going to see that theme throughout this passage as well. If anyone uh, had clarity about who their enemies were, it would be Paul, right? Remember, he's writing from prison. He's most likely chained between two Roman guards he has experienced all kinds of hardship, all kinds of opposition in his work as an apostle, spreading the gospel throughout this um, Turkey and Greece and modern-day Middle East. Uh, he, he would have a pretty quick and clear answer about who his enemies are. And yet, he understands that it's not the guards, it's not even the Roman Empire that are the real enemies here, but rather... It is these powers and these principalities and these forces of evil. This is also where he talks about standing, right? There's a verse 13 and 14. He says it like three different times. Stand your ground. And after you have done everything, stand. Stand firm then. And one of the helpful guides throughout Ephesians that I've referenced a few times is this this book by Watchman Nee, who's a Chinese pastor from the, the 1930s. And he summarizes Ephesians with three different postures. Sitting, sitting in Christ, resting in the work that Christ has done. Walking, we walk our Christian faith in the everyday aspects of our lives. And finally, standing. Standing firm. This is how we're to engage in spiritual warfare. Not on the attack, not fleeing and retreating, simply standing. Many people have pointed out that this list of armor that Paul then goes on to describe is primarily defensive in nature. It's primarily things that protect us, that guard us, that allow us to simply stand and to stand firm. And the only reason that we can do that again is because Christ has already won the battle. That Satan has already been defeated. And so our job is not to redefeat him. Our job is simply to stand firm trusting in the work that Christ has done. Well, then Paul goes on to describe the particular pieces of the spiritual armor. And, and many common commentators have, have thought, well, here he is in a Roman prison, most likely chained, uh, you know, not to the floor, but chained to Roman guards. And so he's looking at the armor that they're wearing. And he's like, oh, there's, there's some imagery here that's helpful. <laughs> so he describes uh, a suit of armor. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, a shield of faith, a helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is our equipment for the battle that we find ourselves in. And there's a lot to be mined here about the way that the different... uh, the different pieces of armor that Paul describes connect to what they represent, you know, the the belt of truth. What does that do? But I think what struck me as I was reading this and I was reflecting on these different aspects of the ways that we are equipped to face this battle is that each one of these pieces describes Jesus Christ. That essentially Paul is saying what he's been saying this entire book, which is the, the way that you are equipped for life, the way that you are equipped to live this faith in the workplace, in your marriage, and the way that you are equipped to engage in spiritual warfare is to clothe yourself in Christ. To put on Christ, to root yourselves intimately with Jesus. Right? Jesus is the truth. He says this, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is our righteousness. Paul says this, it's because of him You are in Christ Jesus, who's become for us wisdom from God. That is, he's become our own righteousness. Jesus is our peace. This was earlier in Ephesians, right? He's made the two groups one. He's removed any barrier between humanity and God, and he's also done the same for, uh, for all of his creation, that any sort of division that existed beforehand between his people, he's removed that barrier. He has become, for us, our peace. Paul talks about the shield of faith, but Jesus himself is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Paul talks about the helmet of salvation. And then earlier in Romans says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That God in Christ is our salvation. The Psalmist writes, truly my soul finds rest in God, finds rest in God, my salvation comes from him. And finally, when Paul talks about the sword as the word of God, we recall to mind the words of John one, right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning, through him all things were made. This Word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth kind of blitzed through there, but there's all of these allusions to these pieces of armor are essentially just descriptions of Christ. Descriptions of what it is for us to put on Christ. That as we root ourselves in him, he becomes for us spiritual armor and allows us to engage in this battle that we are in without fear. Because it's not our battle to fight. Without any sense of overconfidence that it has to be something we, you know, has to be skills or, or character qualities that we drum up. Because it's, it's all character qualities that Christ has that he gives to us freely. So to be clothed in Christ is to be putting on this kind of armor. And I, I mean, this, this is a pretty intense passage But I also believe that this passage can be a great comfort to us in a number of ways. And I think the first way that it can be a comfort is that it helps define and describe reality that we all experience. Uh, There's a line from a Ben Harper song uh, called Better Way, where he says, everyone I know is in the fight of their lives. And if you've ever seen or heard him sing it live, it's, it's kind of this like sweet gospel song. And he gets to that line and he just screams it with like every ounce of passion he has. Everyone I know is in the fight of their lives. And I think that's true. I think that's true. And I think that Paul describes part of what that fight is about. That fight is against the spiritual forces of evil that are present in the world. And we need to be aware of that. We need to not forget that. I think we're inclined to live life as if what you see is what you get, right? Uh, that, that all that is here in reality is what we can taste, touch, experience with our five senses. And Paul says, no, there's more. There's more. So what does the devil want to do in this battle? I think one of the things that we can do, uh, certainly throughout Scripture, you can find different places and ways where uh, Satan appears and uh, and tempts or discourages or does what he's trying to do to counter the will of God. Um, And probably the the first place to start is in the Garden of Eden, in the account of Genesis, where he approaches Adam and Eve, and he lies. It's the first thing he does. He twists God's good word to Adam and Eve and lies to create in them doubt, doubt of God's goodness, doubt of God's provision. And I I, I think that there's something to the fact that Paul begins in his description of the armor by talking about the belt of truth. That's the first one that he mentions. Because I think that that is probably our first and most powerful defense against the lies of Satan, is to remind ourselves of what is true. I hope that that's what we are experiencing whenever we come together here on Sunday morning. Whenever we come to the scriptures, whenever we spend time in prayer, converse with each other, I hope that these are moments where we are reminding ourselves of what is most true. I came across a couple of things this week uh, where the authors were defining, you know, what what is Satan up to in the world? Richard Foster said this, uh, in contemporary society, our adversary majors in three things, noise, hurry, and crowds. Noise, hurry, and crowds. Another author named Jeremy Treat identifies the three main ways that Satan works this way, deception, temptation, and accusation. And I think there's ways in which those three things are not necessarily three different descriptions, but we can find those connections, right? The the noise and the hurry of modern society distracts us, feeds us uh, lies about what is most important in life that we then believe. Uh, It it raises, (laughs) raises up all kinds of comparisons, right? All kinds of comparisons about how we don't measure up in whatever way that is, and accuses us of all of our failures, brings them to life. Jeremy Treat summarized it this way, that Satan is a wicked whisperer, whispering lies. And so we we ground ourselves in Christ, in the truth about who we are, about the nature of humanity and about the nature of God's intention in the world. That God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. That you and I, when we are in Christ, we are forgiven. Our sins are no longer counted against us. This is the truth. Martin Luther has some really wonderful quotes uh, about Satan. (laughs) Um, One of them gets to this sense of reminding ourselves of what is true. Grounding ourselves in the truth. He says this. When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell... We ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. This is the truth. We see this at work when Jesus faced temptation in the desert, right? He goes to the desert to pray and to fast in preparation for his season of ministry. And Satan meets him there and tempts him. And each time Jesus comes back with the words of scripture, that he has been grounded in the truth of who God is and God's intention for him, God's care for him. So each time he's faced with a temptation, he simply comes back with the truth of scripture. So again, coming back to this sitting, walking, and standing progression through Ephesians. Here we are standing firm, clothed in Christ. But that takes us immediately back to the first posture of sitting, that the only way that we can stand firm in this battle is if we are consistently finding ourselves seated in Christ, resting in the work of Christ, that he has accomplished all of this for us. He has already won the battle. There's a helpful distinction to be made here that not everything is the devil's fault, right? We also uh, bear our part in, uh, in the struggles that we face. Part of the battle that we are in is with our own flesh. But there's an important distinction that scripture makes that was highlighted for me years ago, and I've not forgotten it. It's kind of always been there in my mind um, because we often flip these around. Oftentimes we, uh, you know, especially if you watch movies about, evil forces and and demons and devils, uh, there's a lot of power imbued in them, and there's much to be feared, and the appropriate response is to run away. But that's not what the witness of the Bible is. Scripture says, no, no, stand firm. They've already been defeated. You don't need to fear. Fear not, right? We just sang that song. So we stand firm to resist the devil. But when it comes to our own temptations, our own weaknesses, and our own fleshly desires... We flee. That's, what the, that's the, the, the nuance of, of how the scripture uh, makes a distinction here between uh, Satan's work in the world and our own temptations. We can resist and stand up to Satan's work in the world because Christ has already defeated him. But we don't trust our own strength when it comes to standing up against our own weakness. We flee that. I I can't resist another Martin Luther quote because this one's so good. I mean, we sang Luther earlier with "The mighty fortress is our God. He also said, I resist the devil and often is with a fart that I chase him away. When he tempts me with a silly sin, I say, devil, yesterday I broke wind too. Have you written that down on your list? You might find that helpful in the battle that you're in. You can't talk about Satan and Luther and not use that quote. (laughs) Here's here's the gift of this passage, I think. The gift is that it describes for us reality. And we are prone, I think, many of us, especially in in modern society here, to to live our lives as if this battle was not happening, as if the forces of evil were not at work trying to dissuade us and discourage us and uh, counter the will of God. And so I think the, the question for us is, what's, what story do we find ourselves in? What's the, what's the story? What's the, the, the vision of reality that you and I find ourselves in? Is it one that's dominated by politics? Uh, the left and the right, Democrats, Republicans, who's making what decisions? Who would get, what would get fixed if so-and-so got elected? Is that the primary story? When we think of our life lived in this day and age, is that the primary story we find ourselves in? Maybe the story that most occupies our imagination and our vision is of our own failures, our own weaknesses. Maybe the story that we find ourselves in is one that's dominated by a race towards accumulating stuff. There are others. I'm sure. I think the gift in this passage is Paul reminds us of the story that is most real. Which is that there is a spiritual reality that we cannot see, but is very real. There are forces at work in the world that are counter to God. Not equal to God, but opposed to God. And we find ourselves in this battle. If you feel like you've ever been in a battle, if that ever feels like a description of some moments in your life, take heart, Paul says. That's actually accurate. And here's what's going on. Christ has already defeated our opponent on the cross. Sin, death, and the devil have been defeated once and for all. And we find ourselves, the reality for us is that we are in Christ And this victory that Christ has won for us, he gives to us. He says, you guys get to participate. You get to taste this victory now. But until he returns, there is still a battle that we are in. And so the invitation is to simply stand. Stand firm. Clothed with Christ. Paul ends with prayer and evangelism. He says, pray in the spirit. Pray for me that I might do the work that God has called me to do. That when I understand the seriousness of this story, the weight of this story that I am in. Of God pursuing sinners. Of evil at work in the world. I will feel an urgency about this message. That needs to be shared. People are desperate for the good news of the gospel. And Paul knows it. So in light of this battle that we're in, he says, pray for me that, that I can share it as I should, even though I'm in chains. Prayer, though it is not listed necessarily uh, in the same part of, uh, you know, as, as one of the, the weapons that we have, I think is actually probably the most significant uh, weapon that we have in this battle. To call on God, who has all power and authority, to engage him in conversation. So I hope this morning that, that we're woken up a little bit more to what is real, to what is true. Not in a way that freaks us out or, or makes us worried because we know who has won the battle. But in a way that, that counters the what you see is what you get mentality that I think most of us probably live in most of the time. I want to finish this morning by reading this passage again in a different translation in in the message. So if you want to close your eyes, you can picture Paul in prison if that helps you. Well, that about wraps it up. God is strong and he wants you strong. So take everything the master has set out for you well-made weapons of the best material, and put them to use so you will be able to stand up to everything the devil throws your way. This is no afternoon athletic contest that we'll walk away from and forget about it in a couple of hours. This is for keeps, a life-or-death fight to the finish against the devil and all his angels. Be prepared. You're up against far more than you can handle on your own. Take all the help that you can get every weapon God has issued so that when it's all over but the shouting, you'll still be on your feet. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, and salvation. These are more than just words. Learn how to apply them. You will need them throughout your life. God's word is an indispensable weapon. In the same way, Prayer is essential in this ongoing warfare. Pray hard, pray long, pray for your brothers and sisters. Keep your eyes open, keep each other's spirits up so that no one falls out, falls behind or drops out. And don't forget to pray for me. Pray that I'll know what to say and that I'll have the courage to say it at the right time. Telling the mystery to one and all. The message that I, jailbird preacher that I am, am responsible for getting out. Lord, thank you for the good news that in your death and resurrection you conquered sin, death, and the devil and that we have nothing to fear. Lord, for those of us who doubt, who struggle to believe that this is true, encourage us. we often resonate with that that father of the demon-possessed boy saying, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Give us eyes to see what is true, what is really happening in the world. And equip us with your power to live as your sons and daughters in it. Whether that's in our marriages in our places of work, with our neighbors, wherever it is that we find ourselves, Lord. Help us to see what you are doing. Help us to be aware that there are spiritual forces at work seeking to oppose your will. Give us courage to face up to them, to stand firm, trusting that they cannot and will not win. And Lord, fill us with your hope. We're desperate for your hope. That one day you will return to make all things new. Give us a taste of that even more this week, we pray.